0: Hey, y'all, this is Andrew Pope. If you've not heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way by far to make a podcast. They've got all the tools you need to record and edit your podcast from your phone or your computer. They even distribute it for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many more. And the two things I probably love about Anchor the most is how you can make money from your podcast no matter how many listeners you have and it's absolutely free to get started. It's about everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today.
1: Eric Bischoff here and you're listening to Picking It Out with Andrew Pope. This
0: another podcast. Yeah, we're going to be picking it out. It's just another podcast. We're picking it out. Ain't no telling what kind of shit we're gonna talk about. Yeah, cause we're just picking it out. hey y'all well
1: that was pretty awesome Ah, oh,
0: well i'm due for one awesome time a month i guess so my name is andrew pope and i have no idea what i'm doing uh i basically went on amazon and ordered a bunch of stuff to do a podcast because this year has been so crazy and it's felt like such a disconnect from Any of the stuff I've been doing for the last 13 years. uh, I just, I miss having engagement with friends of mine from the entertainment world. And I, I just feel, I feel like there's a big part of me that's been asleep all year because of the music business and how it's been and everything. And so I thought, well, hell, why not? We'll just start a podcast and have a couple of drinks and. Just talk about whatever. And uh, the first thought I had when I thought about a podcast, I sent a text to this guy because he's got, like I think, like the number one podcast in the continent right now, uh, 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. So uh, I thought it'd only be fitting to have Eric, if he would, on the first edition of Picking It Out. So he's been a New York Times best-selling author. He's basically the reason professional wrestling became what it became and is what it is, in my opinion. Vince McMahon gets a lot of that credit, but if not for the things that this guy did, uh, it wouldn't be what it is point blank so um mr eric bischoff is here how you doing man
1: i'm doing well i'm doing well andrew great to see you again it's been a while
0: good to see you too man
1: uh, how's cody out there cody um you know one of the reasons i love living in cody is it never changes it hasn't changed much except for walmart <clears throat> maybe a new hotel here and there on the other end of town But for the most part, Cody, Wyoming is essentially the same little town I came to in 1977 when I was 22 years old with $128 in cash in my pocket, an $80 limit on my MasterCard, and decided to come out to Wyoming and see what the West was like. And it hasn't changed much since, man. It's really cool. I mean, obviously, we've been affected here in Cody and Wyoming um, by COVID, just like a lot of other people, but it hasn't really had the same impact as it has in a lot of other parts of the country because social distancing is why most people live here. It's, it's why you move to Wyoming there's only 500,000 people in the entire state when our state's the size of Colorado geographically, but there's only 500,000 people in the whole state. There's about six people per square mile on average. And where I live, it's probably less than that. So it's changed a little bit, but not much. That's just how
0: I like it. The less neighbors, the better.
1: Well, you know, I, we've got neighbors. You know, we 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 socialize with them a little bit, but you know, they're not breathing down your back. They mm-hmm. they they can't tell what time of the day you take your garbage out. Right. They can't tell you you know what type of toothpaste you use because they can see through your bathroom window in the mornings when you're getting ready for work. It's pretty spaced out out here. And besides, if I happen to see something out running across my property out back that looks like it might look good in my freezer, I can take care of that too. So, kind oh yeah. Of like that. I mean, there's no
0: there's no telling what you'll see out there. Just looking out your your uh, on your balcony there, uh, having coffee in the morning. It's it's just a whole new yeah. World. We
1: you know we get predictably you know we get a lot of mule deer that come through here. Some white tail, but mostly mule deer. Oh uh, Once in a while, you'll get antelope that will come through the property. Um, the weird, the most unique one I ever saw was about. Five years ago, six years ago, I was out in the driveway. It was in the early fall, maybe September, early October. It was a nice day out, 70 degrees. I'm out working on my truck. Looked across the front property and I thought to myself, damn, that is the ugliest horse I have ever seen moving across my property. And I'm thinking to myself, who owns this ugly damn horse? I'm looking closer at the horse and I'm looking, because my eyes are not that good. Didn't have my glasses on at the time. I'm looking at this horse going, this is somebody just needs to put this horse out of its misery because it's just ugly. And then as I watch it closer, I realize it wasn't a horse. It was a moose. There was a freaking moose in my front yard. Oh, my God. And then once, you know, once I, because you don't expect to see that up where, you know, we're up high, you know, usually the moose are down low near water and near rivers and such, and we don't have any rivers or trees or anything around our property. So I was shocked and I jumped in my truck, you know, and the moose jumped across the front fence and took off down into some public land. So I jumped in my truck, threw my dog in the truck, and I chased this moose all over trying to get pictures of it. And I got a few, but yeah,
0: <laughs> I see a moose
1: in my front yard.
0: Wow, that's something. Um, I mean, it's if any if anybody is out there that's never been out west, it is a whole nother, it's, it's like you're in a whole nother dimension. It's really amazing.
1: It's different. You know, the the attitudes, you know, just people. I mean, look, look, I think a lot of it has to do with the people that live here in Wyoming in particular. Choose to do so knowing that it's a very different lifestyle. You, You either are born here and are raised in that lifestyle and you appreciate it and you stay here. Or you're someone like me. Who who I you know first time I came out here I was in I was living in Minnesota I was twenty two years old I had never been west of the state of Minnesota before I didn't know what mountains really looked like I'd never been in the mountains I'd seen pictures of them seen movies all that kind of stuff I knew of them but I never experienced it when you get out here two things that I was overwhelmed with was just one the overwhelming um, power of nature because there's so much of it and it's so different than what i was used to yeah and the other is people you know like i said people that live here were either born here a lot of them that live around me are second third generation ranchers uh their grandparents or great-grandparents in some cases homesteaded the property um or you get people that like me wanted to live here because of what wyoming has to offer Mm -hmm. and as a result of either of those two variables. You get a pretty independent crowd out here. Um, there's not a lot of wokeness yeah. in the neighborhood, so to speak. There's not a, a pressure to feel like you have to belong to anything or any ideology or any, right. pretty much just mind your own business, mm-hmm. leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. And we can be friends. Yeah. That's kind of the under, understated or undertone way of getting along out here is just mind your own business. You know, mean, Kanye West lives 20 miles from me here, 15 miles from me. Kanye West gets along great in town mm-hmm. because Kanye didn't, he, he came here because he wanted to be here and experience what Wyoming is, not bring Los Angeles or New York City exactly. to Cody, Wyoming. So, you know, he's he gets along with everybody and people here have a lot of time and respect for him, are excited for him to be here, he's building business here, or businesses. And it's great, but it's because of the attitude that he brought with him as opposed to, you know, I see this is this just scares me, Andrew. I don't want to get into politics too much because it just gets me all pissed off and shit. Oh, it's it's terrible, but man. You go north of here, go up into Montana, and it's an entirely different state than Wyoming. I no, mean, it didn't it used to be. It used to be very much like Wyoming. But so many people from California started buying up big, beautiful homes and big beautiful ranches and You know, a lot of movie stars, a lot Uh of musicians, a lot of people, a lot of money started buying up a lot of stuff. And then you've got, you know, the University of Montana, Bozeman is there, so you've got a lot of people that come in from other parts of the country and they bring their politics and Mm -hmm. all of the things with them and then they stay. And all of a sudden Montana is a much more liberal environment than it ever used to be. I don't like going up to Montana just because of that. Not because I disagree necessarily with liberals on a lot of things, I probably agree with them. I'm socially very liberal, fiscally very conservative, but, you know, it's just different. It's a different vibe. Jackson Hole, Wyoming, another example. You go down to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, it's an area—now, it's Wyoming, which is an anomaly here in the state, but the billionaires run the millionaires out of town. Yeah. And all those billionaires are from New York or L.A. Right, and if you go into Jacksonville right now or Jackson Hole right now, you might as well be in a suburb of Beverly Hills because mm-hmm. that's what it feels like. So, but up here where we're at is kind of pristine, if you will, yeah, compared to Montana or Jackson Hole.
0: Hell, I think we need more of that.
1: Yeah, well, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen. It's I think it's really ironic is, you know, and I've lived in Los Angeles. You know, I, I had a production company in L.A. and I lived in Santa Monica. Yeah, you know, I enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. I had fun while I was there. But, you know, when people move out of L.A. because they can't afford it anymore, or they can't stand the taxes anymore, or they can't afford to buy a house anymore, whatever the case is. And they move to places like Arizona. Well, guess what? They bring their politics with them, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, Arizona becomes Los Angeles, and they end up having the same problems in Arizona that they tried to leave. Yeah, And they don't realize it's because they brought their politics with them.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's always good to have somewhere to just to escape to, and you know, you're talking about the liberal and the conservative thing. I, I'm so done with that. I, I just, uh, I'm. I'm independent, you know, uh, I I just I have a lot of I mean, obviously, being from Alabama, I'm pretty conservative, but these Republicans, some of these Republicans have really lost me this time. I, I just feel like both sides have really went way out in a field somewhere and they're spinning circles or something. It's crazy. I don't know
1: well it's a business politics is a business people don't get into politics because they I'm, I'm making a general statement here and I'm sure there are exceptions to this but in my opinion you look at people that are in the Senate for example who they are they're all millionaires mm-hmm. and most of them weren't millionaires when they got there yeah some of them were uh, you look at Congress you know most of those people are there because they can make a lot of money while they're there it's it's a career move it's it's not public service it's self-service dressed up like public service right yeah and i think when he, when when government becomes self-service instead of public service that's when you get yeah the kind of craziness as my jewish friends would say mishigas which is <laughs> yiddish for craziness
0: it's a scary thing man uh like you said i mean i don't i don't like getting into it either but it's uh it's 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 scary what's going on here um how's miss Lori?
1: Lori's doing great she's uh just as chipper and positive and energetic as ever she's doing great she she made a nice brunch for us today and um, now she's she's got her own podcast so she's doing I think she's prepping for a show she's going to do on Monday
0: oh awesome what's the name of that shift happens shift happens I love that Kind of like
1: shit happens only shift happens I love
0: that (laughs) that's that's brilliant um any bulletproof coffee this morning
1: uh yes indeed i actually i had uh some some things i had to do this morning uh early so i got up and uh, yeah mrs b fired up a bulletproof coffee got me on my way caffeinated me got me all jazzed up and almost unlivable but uh kind of coming down from that now so it's all right
0: you ought to try to find ghee in alabama not easy make
1: your own brother it's better if you know make your make own it. anyway
0: i don't know how to make it
1: oh it's easy i thought it was the it's name easy.
0: of a movie until you told me what it was <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, man. It's easy. You you you, you, you 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 put it in a pan. You get it nice and hot. It starts to boil, and then all the fats come up to the surface, and then you pour it out through a, a cheesecloth. You pour what's left through a strainer, and then what's left is purified butter, which is ghee, yeah. and all of the uh, all the nasty crap is taken out of it, and it takes on a completely different flavor and texture, and it's just awesome. It's easy to make. Google it. You'll find it. I, I if you can boil water you can make ghee you'll, you'll be all right um
0: back in uh 2018 i was on a big acoustic tour i mean went all over the country just drove in my car and my guitar you know by myself and uh we had lunch there in cody at uh what's what's the name of the place i, I forgot. silver
1: dollar bar saloon oh yeah best hamburger in cody wyoming
0: it was good stuff man and uh you and your lovely wife was kind enough to invite me back to spend the night with y'all. And uh, so I really appreciate that. That, that, meant that a lot. was fun. It was fun. Um, oddly enough, w- me and you have never really talked about wrestling that much. Um, I'm kind of the guy. I don't. I don't, you know, I'm not an interviewer. I just, I kind of, if I want to know an answer to a question, I'll Google it. You know, because you, you do these interviews and it, it gets old talking about the same stuff. Um, but, you know, you've really had an interest in life. And uh, one thing I wanted to know, how did you ever get introduced to country music? Because I know
1: you love it. Wow. When did I start really? Probably in... The early 70s, maybe mid-70s is when I really started listening to country on a regular basis. Uh, I think it was Waylon Jennings, really, some of Waylon's music that really... And I've always loved Johnny Cash. You know, I grew up as a kid listening to Johnny Cash. Yeah. Always loved Johnny Cash. And then started, you know, seeking out different... Types of music. I was kind of a classic rock guy, you know, pretty much. Mm-hmm. But I say you get tired of it. And I have a pretty eclectic taste in music, you know. If somebody, if, yeah. if if and when I die and somebody finds my iPod, they're gonna go through my you know music list and go, yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. He's like bipolar or something, <laughs> you know, because you'll find you know Your iPod's I listen to it as bipolar. much. Any- <laughs> yeah, it's like I don't listen to it much anymore, but I used to love listening to classical music, you know? Yeah. I, I used to have my own airplane and I'd fly cross country and I love flying, you know. I'd, I'd be up there by myself, you know, flying and often when I when I get up at altitude if I was on a cross country flight, I kind of just punch in coordinates on my GPS and hit my autopilot and just, uh, you know and just sit back and relax and I would plug in and, and I would listen to classical music while I was like cruising along at 220 miles an hour at 15,000 feet it was pretty freaking cool. Yeah, that's you know, I, interesting. Just dug it. That's
0: that's but, I Yeah,
1: I started started in the mid 70s or so and, and my my taste in music kind of grew the more I listened to it the more I sought out other artists and performers and country music kind of became uh one of my favorite forms of music for a long time
0: that's cool uh waylon just blew it up in the 70s so it's funny you say him because uh if i'm not mistaken i think that him and uh jesse and uh willie and tom paul glazer had the first platinum record in nashville with the outlaws i don't oh, know if you remember that record cool. or not but that's the sure first one sure i do um yeah, Waylon was, he he he, nobody had ever seen anything like him when he came to town. Um, I, did your parents or grandparents or anything listen to country music when you grew up in Detroit?
1: You know, my my mother did, my father did. not My father, how is my my dad had some weird quirks about him. You know, there were certain things he felt strongly about, and country music was one of them. Yeah not in a good way yeah my mother on the other hand she lived she grew up as a kid in southern Illinois before she she moved up into Michigan and I think it was just part of her childhood yeah. more than anything and so my mom would listen to it and that's probably where I first got exposed to it but uh, no I, I didn't listen to a lot of a lot of country music when I was a kid because my parents didn't really
0: well you you grew up in Detroit right
1: I did I did
0: how many fights or what was your first fight you ever been in because I know you haven't been huh. in a lot
1: uh, you know it's it's funny I, I uh, I've talked about this in the past and people when I say it they don't really believe it you know it's like oh that can't be true That's silly that doesn't really happen but where I grew up fighting when you're a kid you know, fighting was a part of the social structure. It was just as much a part of social structure as recess. Yeah. You know? And often they coincided. But I would typically get in a fight on my way to school. Not not every day. Definitely at lunchtime because somebody wanted my lunch money. Lunch money. money. It, that was going to happen. I mean, you such a watch to that. And then same thing on the way home. And I was, you know, I was scrawny kid i wasn't a good fighter i wasn't a tough kid so i was an easy target especially for the older kids you know in my school and in my neighborhood so i i got my ass beat at least twice a day and it wasn't unusual for it to happen three times a day for for a number of years (laughs) i (laughs) I lost count a long time ago um
0: do you remember the first time that you ever was exposed to wrestling whether it was on tv or went to a match What, what was that sure
1: well, as a kid, you know, growing up in Detroit, you know, and we're talking about the early '60s now, so you got to kind of go back into the time machine and try to imagine what life was like in the '60s, because there was a lot of things that we take for granted today that didn't exist back then. Yeah, and and culturally, we were quite a bit different. You know, my my father would not let my mother work because mm. that was.
0: That was the thing back, that was, the, I was that generation.
1: Know, that the the, the the undertone of that situation would be that my father wasn't good enough or able enough to provide for the family, so his yeah. wife had to go work. Yeah. And that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So my mom didn't work. And we only had one car in our family. So, and my dad always worked on Saturdays. He was a hardworking dude. So on Saturdays, my mom would drive my father to work, drop him off where he worked, and then she would take the car and go do the weekly grocery shopping. Mm. Well, that, that little four- or five-hour window every Saturday morning allowed my younger brother and I to run shit. We ran the house, which means we controlled the television, we could make we could have ice cream for breakfast. Yeah. We could do all kinds of, you know, horrific childhood things that we weren't supposed to do and get away with it because mom and dad were both gone. And our, our kind of thing was, you know, you to get up in the morning and eat a carton of ice cream and whatever it is and other junk food we ate, some potato chips and whatever. Yeah. And sit down in front of the television and watch, you know, cartoons early in the morning. And as the morning progressed, up around I think it was like 11 o'clock in the morning. That's when wrestling came on, professional wrestling, which at that time in Detroit came out of uh, CKLW, uh, which is in Windsor, Canada, mm. on Channel 9, big-time wrestling. So my mm. brother and I, little brother, younger brother, he was four years younger than I was, we would watch wrestling. And when wrestling was over, we would then reenact all the crazy wrestling stuff that we'd been watching on TV. And, of course, because I was four years older and, bigger yeah. and all that i, did, I loved it oh yeah i, I was undefeated <laughs> <laughs>
0: me and my cousin did that kind of we we're, we were kind of like brothers growing up and we did the same thing <laughs> i beat up on him pretty good
1: yep yeah, so that was that was my first real exposure to wrestling and then I, when i was probably 13 or 14 my my dad got uh, relocated to pittsburgh and i moved to pittsburgh and found out wait a minute You mean, there's a new world heavyweight champion here in Pittsburgh that I've never heard of? Because this is before cable television. It's in each little territory. Territory. You know, the Midwest had their wrestling territory, and the East Coast had their wrestling territory. And, you know, if you lived in the Midwest, you didn't know about the East Coast. If you lived in the East Coast, you didn't know about the Midwest, right? So I was like, you know, bewildered. Bruno San Martino was a big deal in Pittsburgh. And, of course, as a kid, you know, he was our hero. And, yeah. And I had some. I had a, a friend by the name of Marty Migloretti, Irish dude. <laughs> <laughs> Marty Migloretta lived in the same kind of Italian part of town that Bruno San Martino lived in. So we would oftentimes on Saturday mornings, we'd get on our bikes or whatever, ride over to San Martino's neighborhood and see if we could sneak a peek at him, you know, taking the garbage out or something. We never did, but, you know, it was exciting to hope for it.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, Hulk Hogan or Randy Savage living in our neighborhood and trying to, I mean, even getting the chance to do that. You know, the chance you might actually see him when you're a kid at that age, that would be, That'd be talked about for twenty years, you know. Uh kids live for that stuff. Uh you uh you eventually ended up in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, right? Uh-huh. And you were um uh, you were in sales at the time, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I've always been, you know, a jack of all trades and a master of none. none but Me too. The the one thing that I think the one consistent theme throughout my career, I guess, has been sales. And you know, sales is sales is part of everybody's career, whether they sure. acknowledge it or not. Yeah. We're always selling. You're yeah. selling your music. You're yeah. selling your vision for music. You know, what I mean? mm-hmm. you, you may be a musician, but you're also a salesman. You have to be.
0: You have to be. It's
1: part of it. And. I was always really good at sales. I just, it came naturally to me. Uh, So yeah, I was, I was a sales manager actually for a food processor right before I got into the professional wrestling business. I had a crew of about 10 or 12 salespeople that I would recruit and train and manage and I did that for quite a while and it was, it was okay for me and I made a buck or two and was able to pay the bills and shit, but it wasn't my passion for sure and then I, you know, stumbled into professional wrestling.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what led you into Vern Gagne, right? Trying to sell Indirectly,
1: him. yeah. I mean, the real, you know, what led me into Vern Gagne, I mean, Vern hired me because I was a good salesperson, mm-hmm. but what really kind of opened the door for me with Vern Gagne and the AWA was, uh, I also, when I was in Minnesota, I spent a great deal of time in martial arts. I got my black belt in karate in 1979, And I was a pretty active uh, martial artist. I competed all over the country and a lot of different levels, eventually at at the the black belt level, fought in a lot of tournaments, ended up fighting on ESPN a couple times back Mm. before the UFC. It was called the PKA, Mm. Professional Karate Association. Had a couple of televised fights and things like that. But during that period of time when I was heavily involved in martial arts, um, I met a good, uh, who is now a good friend of mine, met a guy by the name of Sonny Ono.
0: Oh, yeah. Sonny I was,
1: him. Uh, yeah, Sonny is a, a couple months older than I am, I guess. But he grew up in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in Detroit. And one night after a tournament we were both competing in, he and I went out and had a couple dozen or more beers. <laughs> as we are chasing women or whatever we are doing? Surely not. Yeah. That was a big part <laughs> of it. I don't
0: believe that shit, hurt. I on. didn't really care at all
1: about martial <laughs> arts, but the women, yeah. <laughs> so that was different. That's the root um, of it. But one night we were sitting down having a couple cocktails, and I asked Sonny, I said, Sonny, what was your life like as a 10-year-old kid growing up in Tokyo? What what did you do? You Because know? he grew up much like I did. I lived in a very lower middle class Mm -hmm. lower lower middle class family or neighborhood yeah and and so did Sonny so we started comparing notes and Sonny told me that you know one of the things that they used to do is run around and I guess in Japan back then when you bought bottles of milk they had like little caps on it like twist off caps and people would get those and they'd throw them and be laying on the streets and things like that. And the kids would go around and pick them up and collect them. Mm. And then they would throw them at each other like little shuriken stars, those little ninja stars that you see, right? And that's how they played tag, throwing milk bottle caps. And if you got hit, you were out. You know, last person standing wins. And I used to play a very similar kind of game, only in my neighborhood we used clumps of dirt and sometimes rocks. And we'd have rock fights. And same thing. We weren't trying to hurt each other. It sounds horrible. You're throwing rocks at each other for fun. It wasn't that, yeah. but it was kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, you'd catch one in on the forehead and have to go visit the local hospital. But for yeah. the most part, it was a f- relatively safe game. So we're comparing notes on this, and then by the time the evening ended, we had sketched out this idea for a game called Ninja Star Wars. And the, you would order it, and it'd come in a box, and you'd get two uh, felt-type vests that would come over you. and There was a little ninja warrior screen on the front, and, and this was back in the Karate Kid days. So we had this little headband that you tie it around your head, and there was a real thin piece of plastic that was eye protection, and there were six red stars and six whites or three red stars and three white stars, and these stars were Velcro, and they were weighted down like with a two-penny washer in the middle, and it was all soft material around it, and you could throw them across the room, and if you hit somebody's in the vest, then it's stuck, and the first person to get tagged three times was out simple game so we've decided we were going to become multimillionaires with this idea <laughs> and we took every nickel we could beg borrow or steal mm-hmm. and we did all of the above if you count bouncing checks as stealing which i did it is at the time. yeah it is still still do yeah but we we did it you know and we ordered because you can't order like a hundred games when you have something manufactured like that you've got to do it in bulk right yeah so we had to order five thousand of these games (laughs) and we imported them from korea where they were manufactured Uh. so we're just chomping at the bit we can't wait till we get these games we're going to become millionaires (laughs) gonna so finally the day comes when the games all arrive and then we went okay now how are we going to sell these things (laughs) It's a really cool game, but we hadn't really thought about how we were going to sell them, how we were going to market them, where we were going to get the money to market them. Yeah, none of that ever really kind of crossed our to-do list on mm-hmm. any given day. So then we had to kind of we had the improv, you know, and we did. We'd go to shopping malls and we'd be you know, we'd get permission from a store owner, like a game store owner. I say, look, I know you're not going to carry our game, but you know, can we just demonstrate it? And you know, if anybody wants to buy it, you know, we'd bring like a hundred games with us and stack them up in the front of the store. And if people wanted to buy them, they buy them from the store, and we'd get a piece of the action. <laughs> yeah, we so we did that for a while. That worked pretty cool. And then one day, we were, we were getting our asses kicked financially because we just had all these games in our garage or under our beds or in our attic or in our yeah. neighbor's basement. I mean, we had games stashed all over. There's we probably still games stashed all over South <laughs> Minneapolis somewhere. So I thought, you know what? I used to wrestle in high school and, and in college. And Vern Gagne was a really active supporter of amateur wrestling. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know... What if I called Vern Gagne and introduced myself, and by the way, I wrestled in the same kind of school district that Vern was very active in when he was supporting amateur wrestling. So I had actually met Vern a couple times at high school wrestling events and things like that. So I said, I'm just going to play this amateur wrestling card and see if I can make it work for me. So I called the AWA offices and introduced myself to the receptionist and said, I used to wrestle at Minnetonka Senior High School, Minneapolis. And I met Vern a couple times. I was wondering if I could possibly get a meeting with him. And I, about an hour later, I got a call back saying, sure, Vern, would love to meet you. Come on in. And oh, went, wow. Oh, shit, this is great. You no, know, I'm, I'm 30. This is 1987, so I'm 32 years old at the time. So I wasn't a kid. It wasn't mm-hmm. like I was 16 getting to meet a hero. I was like, yeah. wow. But it's still a big damn deal to me. Oh, yeah. So I go there and there's like eight or 10 people all sitting around this big conference table, big, long conference table. And I got up I put on my felt vest and I put one on somebody else and started throwing stars at each other and chasing each other around the table. And everybody was laughing and having a good time and ended up making a deal with Vern Gagne where if we advertised our game on his wrestling show. And at the time his show was on Monday through Friday on ESPN from three to four. So it was kind of a good deal for me. Mm-hmm. But I said, I'll, I'll supply the game, I'll shoot the TV commercial, which I had no idea how to do, by the way. I'd never shot a TV commercial in my life, so I was just winging it, right? I said I'll shoot the TV commercial, I've already got the games, we'll sell them and we'll split the profit 50-50. Great. So we entered into that agreement and we did okay. We sold a few games, but what Vern saw in me I think was a, was a hustler you know, or yeah. a good salesperson, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. And he offered to, uh, he hired me to handle his syndication for his television show, which is a sales job. It's yeah. taking a television show and selling it into a local television market. Yeah, And I learned all about television syndication as a result of that, but it's still just sales sales. It's just no different than selling food or cars or real estate or any sales of sales. Yeah. That's so true. it worked out pretty well for me. And then it just kind of grew on from there.
0: Um, uh, Do you remember how Vern, what was his attitude when you got the meeting with him? Was he kind of like, ah, you're, you know, not important enough? Or did he remember who you were? No, the
1: opposite of that. No, the opposite of that. Vern was a very, you know, Vern was a complex guy, like all of us are. You know, none of us kind of fit easily into any one mold. And Vern was much the same way. But I think because of the amateur wrestling thing, and Mm -hmm. Vern was generally, you know, he was a people person, he Mm -hmm. could be tough. He yeah. could be tough to do business with. It's, I guess, the nature of being a wrestling promoter or yeah. having been a wrestler before you became a wrestling promoter. It is Even a immersed. dog. It's no different than the music business or any other form of entertainment. It's a ruthless, carnivorous yeah. business. You know, everybody's trying to eat everybody else's lunch. It's just That's the true. way it is, and you can become a little cynical as a result of that. But. Despite that, Vern was very, he was laughing his ass off. He was just having a ball with it. He, he had so much fun with it. He hired me. So his attitude was, you know, I was, I was grateful that he was as engaging and open as he was.
0: And after he hired you, you, that's where you started really learning about production and all the things that you seem to really have a passion for, you know, that would carry out throughout your whole yeah, life. Yeah, it
1: was interesting because You know, as a kid growing up in the sixties, you know, television was still it was still kind of new. Yeah. You know? And in in the sixties, television was the center of most families' universes. Mm -hmm. Meaning one day I got home from work and kids were home from school, mom got, you know, dinner prepared. Usually your evening was the family sitting around sharing whatever's on television, right? Sure. It became a big part of your life, or my life, and as I got older, you know, television was still very much as it is today. It's still an important part of our lives. But I was always fascinated with how things work. Mm-hmm. Me too. And I'm looking at television, and I'm thinking, you know, we spend so much time in front of this thing, and it influences us so much. But I had no idea how it worked. Like, how do you how do you take an idea and get it from inside of your skull? And go through whatever process exists mm-hmm. so that somebody can sit there and watch it on television. And, by the way, how does the picture get into the television? <laughs> how does that happen? <laughs> yeah. And I don't like not knowing shit, you know? I so don't either, man. When I, got, when I started working for, for Vern, even though my job was sales, which is really a back office job. You know, you're not anywhere near the production of anything. Yeah, You're just selling. But... You know, because it was a small company and Vern was an open guy, I uh, I had an opportunity to sit and watch post production. I watched how a show was edited. I watched how tapes were dubbed. Back then, he was using a one inch machine, you know, which probably don't even exist anymore. But, you know, I, 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 I was excited to learn how to thread a tape in a one inch machine when mm-hmm. I was 33 or 34 years old. To me, that was like, holy shit, I know how to do this. Yeah. This is great. I was learning, you know, and. I, I tell people that and they look at me and say, "Wow, that's kind of interesting." But I say, "Okay, let me. This will help you understand." Do you have a microwave? Even if they say, "Sure," I say that doesn't surprise me because almost everybody, you know, majority of people have a microwave in their home, mm-hmm. or their camper, or their pickup truck, or whatever. Microwaves are everywhere. Yeah. How does it work? Crickets they don't know how it works Mm -hmm. you ask the average person who has a microwave and have probably had one for most of their lives and you say how does it work i don't know yeah and i think that's silly you know we're using technology and using things and things are such a big part of our lives and we don't even understand how it works or why it works so i was fascinated with learning every aspect of television production i could learn and because of the situation in the AWA being a small company, I could literally, I would go out to Las Vegas and watch them shoot a live show. So, and then bring that, that raw footage back and then what be a part of the edit process and watch it all come together and then distribute it out to the television stations and voila, ending up in your home. So I love that, it was
0: fun. You know, there's a lot of similarities um, in songwriting, except for sometimes in songwriting, you wonder where the idea even came from. You know, I think God just kind of puts it here and just it's up to you to reach up and grab it or or not notice it. But from getting in here, out to on paper, to with a melody, the whole vision, it's it's like a visionary thing. Uh, The whole thing, for me it is and it's kind well, of the same and, and,
1: and, well it's you know one of the reasons i was looking forward to doing this with you and i don't think we talked about this if we did i was drinking or, or you were and i don't remember it but well
0: I got, I'll, I'll tell you here in a minute go ahead all
1: right <laughs> but one of the things you know and I, I, we have a family friend who is uh she's the, one of the background singers on the voice mm-hmm. she also is one of blake shelton's Background singer. She tours with Blake Shelton, and she actually kind of oversees all the background singers on The Voice, and has for many, many years. So, I, I've, I've yet to ask her this question, so I'm going to put it on you. But I've always been fascinated with how music is created, the the inspiration of it. You know, is it? Do, do you stumble across? Does a lyric pop into your head first? Does a melody pop into your head first? Does a story pop into your head that you put music to? Is that how it comes together? And I'm sure it's different for everybody, and maybe it's a combination of all of the above, but I've always been fascinated with what is the ideation? What is the first spark of creativity that inspires a song? you know i have no
0: idea what it is <laughs> great <laughs> because I no, can but be, i'm
1: i excited to hear that because that means it's that means it's out there in the universe and it's up to you to find it i that's think cool.
0: it i think it's i think it comes from some other universe i think it's like because i've been i mean how do you explain this i've been dead asleep in the middle of the night and maybe i get up and have to think i have to go to the bathroom but i have a song idea so i jot it down and that's all you jot down for a minute and there's other times I'm driving through my little small hometown and I get a melody in my head and the phrasing and everything's there the whole I love story songs story songs to me uh, you know that's not something that we have a lot of anymore but country music I think was really about story songs uh, I think that's why they're so relatable with a lot of folks and to me that's country music but that's happened before just driving in the shower i mean i have to get out and get something to write it down and i've had the whole thing happen in one hour before and it, 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 it almost hits you like what the hell just happened and not till i play it back and listen to the little demo i just did do i realize what i had it's almost like somebody else was doing it it's the weirdest thing
1: it's got to be cool. You know, I see you wearing a Willie Nelson shirt. When my wife and I, before we were married, uh, we lived together in Chicago for a brief period of time. And we would drive back and forth from Chicago to Minneapolis to visit family or for the holidays or whatever was going on, right? Mm-hmm. It was Back then, that was when it was a 55 mile an hour speed limit. So it would take about nine hours to go from <laughs> Chicago to Minneapolis. Yeah. And we would listen to a lot of country music, and our favorite was Willie Nelson. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite songs. And we and I waited till we got to a certain part of Wisconsin. It's the area is called Wisconsin Dells, actually. Mm-hmm. Once you get west of Wisconsin Dells, and the, the country becomes very much rolling hillside, very green, and there were a lot of deer, a lot of dairy farms, yeah, and oftentimes we'd be coming through there. And once we got into that part of Wisconsin, because my mood would change depending on the geography around me, right? Mm-hmm. But once I got into the hills and the trees and I started seeing deer, I'd get into a different headspace. And that's when I would put on Willie Nelson because it just was like milk and cookies for me. In my head, it was milk and cookies. It was deer and beautiful scenery and Willie Nelson. That's just pretty freaking cool. But he had a song called Redheaded Stranger. Oh, yeah. Redhead Stranger from Blue Rock, Montana, mm-hmm. roll into town someday. One day, and I love that song because it told such a great story. You could close your eyes and listen to that song and see a movie play out in your head. Yep, and I, and you're right about this. And the country music certainly has more. There are some rock, you know. Stevie Nicks, oh yeah, a, is a great songwriter that tells a story. Sure. within her her style of she music. Is. You know, Bruce Springsteen certainly falls into that category, and he's a, I guess, a version of Bob Dylan. I've never yeah. really liked Bob Dylan's music. I can't stand his voice, but yeah, it's hard to. I, I love, I love his, I love the words to his. I love the stories yeah. in his music, but I can't stand his voice. Mm-hmm. I know that's probably not a popular thing to say, but it uh, is what it is. We ain't some popular people, here, no
0: way. So don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: mean, some people like Bruce and some people don't. It's subjective, right. but. But, sto- but songs that tell a story, in, in any genre, I, those are the ones that I, I always remember or seek out or on my playlist. Me too. If there's not a story, if I can't see a movie in my head, yeah, I'm not really interested. If it's just a good melody and a good beat, eh, yeah. a dozen. Yeah. But you give me a good story with a great melody, oh, love it.
0: That's exactly the same way Chris I feel. Chris Christopherson. Christopherson. Oh, one of the Chris best. Chris
1: Christopherson had... Oh God! You may even hate me for this, but his voice was horrible.
0: No, he and he can't play guitar. But his he songs knows were
1: amazing. It. Yeah, you didn't care if he had the range, uh, you know, of of other you know ho, talented performers. It didn't matter. No, because his music, his stories, mm-hmm. the energy that came from his music was so special that the qual the technical quality of his voice is what I'm saying. Yeah, really didn't matter. No, it was beside the point.
0: That's true. Um, He's one of the best songwriters ever, in my opinion. Oh. Good actor, too. High
1: point high point of my my live music experience took place in nineteen ninety one, I believe. Nassau. Nope. A small little theater. A Fox Theater in downtown Atlanta. I think it was called the Fox Theater in downtown Atlanta. It was used for small concerts and acoustic events and things like that
0: yeah skinner did their last live album there i think before the plane crash
1: i saw the Highwaymen there oh yeah the oh that was Chris something stofferson waylon jennings johnny cash willie willie nelson it was so awesome i mean that was in an that was in a small you probably couldn't get more than 700 people in the venue and it was a f- formerly an old theater, so the acoustics were unbelievable. Mm. I mean, you could hear people breathing on stage. It was so good. Yeah. So it was it was a great experience.
0: Who, who did you go with or who went with you? Do you remember?
1: Nobody. I went by myself. It really? Was, my wife and I were living in Minnesota. We still lived in Minneapolis at the time. I was working for WCW and Turner Broadcasting, but they would fly me in. Like on Sunday nights, they would fly me from Minneapolis into Atlanta. I would stay at the Omni Hotel downtown Atlanta. And because that's where WCW offices were, and I would work for two or three days, two days usually Monday and Tuesday. I would work, and then Tuesday night I'd fly home. Wow. I we didn't live there yet, so it was on one of those Monday or Tuesday nights when uh I, I was in Atlanta by myself and and just got a ticket and went all alone.
0: And you get hired by them, and that's that's kind of a a big difference from what you know what happened at the end of the AWA. There, uh, you couldn't even hardly. I mean, Vern just had such a hard time financially and just went under Now they're flying yeah, in. Yeah,
1: well, you know, Vern was a stubborn guy. He, yeah. he didn't like to change the way he was doing business. And he I don't think Vern realized that the business was changing around him. Certainly Vince McMahon was changing the business in a big way. And mm-hmm. Vern, I Buying think. Buying up uh, all the
0: territories like his.
1: <laughs> yeah, eating them up. And, and then they and, give uh, you shit.
0: You know, yeah. that kills me every time. You think Vince wouldn't have done the same damn thing? I mean, I hate well, when people... Well, he did do it. He actually. Yeah. Did it.
1: He was actually more aggressive than I was, but it mm-hmm. doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. Um, I think it's funny, though, uh, the announcer or the host of AWA got drunk and got a DUI or something, and then you, <laughs> you had a well, suit and tie, and you yeah, got the job.
1: That's. I mean, I was back... You know, <laughs> Now we're going back to the, my early days in AWA when I was a salesman. Yeah. And because I was a salesperson, i have to go out and call on general managers or program directors or whatever, you know, so I always had a sport coat on and I didn't wear a tie during the day, but if I had to go out for a meeting, I had one hanging off the back of my door. I could throw it out while I was driving to the meeting. And one day, uh, there was a, a, an announcer by the name of Larry Nelson, Larry, mm-hmm. had a big tall guy, too tall to be a wrestling announcer, but he had this deep kind of radio voice mm-hmm. that just Vern loved that voice. It had so much power. And the other problem with him is he, Larry was a heavy drinker. I mean, he's one of those guys that go through, you know, a bottle of scotch and two cartons of cigarettes before he started work every day. And he got popped one night, uh, got arrested, thrown in jail. And I'm pretty sure he might have had more than one of these DUIs in his portfolio. But, but he wouldn't let him out of jail. And he was scheduled to do interviews the next day in mm-hmm. the studio. And back then, Vern would fly 25, 30 guys from all different parts of the country, fly them into Minneapolis. We'd produce all of the interviews over the course of one, sometimes two days, and then everybody would go home. Mm. So he had 25 or 30 people sitting around, and he had flown in from all over the country, and we're waiting. And wait, they I wasn't in the room at the time. Everybody's waiting for Larry Nelson to show up so we could start the interviews. Because Larry was the stick guy, you know, he was the guy mm-hmm. doing the interviews, setting up the talent, mm-hmm. and no Larry to be found. And Vern Gagne, or I think it was Greg Gagne, actually came to my office, and said, uh, "Eric, you've got a you've got a tie here, don't you?" And I said, "Well, yeah, it's on the back of the door. Where it always is.
0: Same tie <laughs> that I brought here the first day I came." You've got a tie. And That's uh, the question they asked. You've got a tie, don't you?
1: <laughs> yeah, you got a tie, right? Yeah, well, put it on and follow me. Right, kill for... I'm going. What the hell? Uh, and. It, i went from being a salesman to being an on-camera talent in a matter of about you know five minutes
0: crazy and i mean that it's some of that early footage i went back on the wwe network and looked at some of that it's it's pretty uh, amusing stuff uh but you got you you would get more polished you know at the interviews uh,
1: well, yeah. <laughs> they probably mess I was so god-awful so God in the beginning uh, Andrew. I can't even tell you how bad I was <laughs> I mean I'll never forget you know this is funny you had to be there I wish I had I wish there was videotape of this because I'd I'd watch it every day so Vern and Greg bring me out there, and they're explaining. Okay, now here's what you do. Now keep in mind, they've done thousands and thousands <laughs> yeah. and thousands of these, right? Yeah. It, it's it's like you probably tell us. If at first, you hit the G chord, then you get to, you get into an A, and then you know, transition into a C chord. You'll be fine. Uh, yeah. Okay. For you, that's like rolling out of bed in the morning. For someone like me, that's like Chinese, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. So Vernon Greg go, Now you just do this, this the cameraman's gonna go five, four, three, two. When he points at you, start the interview, and then he's gonna go like this. That means you've got thirty seconds. And Mm. then after you see this, which means thirty seconds, then he's gonna shake his hand. That means you got (laughs) fifteen seconds. And then you're gonna get ten. And then he's gonna count you down. You gotta just wrap this thing up. By the time he gets down to one, make sure you're out. Uh, To them it was like, you know, taking a walk on the beach. Yeah. I had never done it before. And all this information is coming at me. <laughs> <One> and, <time. laughs> and to make it worse, I've got 25 or 30 wrestlers uh. all standing around looking at me going, oh, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> 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 so, yeah. so my very first interview was Larry Zbysko. Oh, right? my God. Now, Larry and I were friends. We had kind of developed a little bit of a relationship. So Larry was going to try to take it easy on me. And the reason that Larry was my first one is because everybody thought he'd be the easiest for me to do because I was already friendly with him. Right. A lot of the other guys, I didn't even really know. I yeah. knew who they were, but I had never really had a conversation with them. So Larry comes up. They dump all the information on me. Okay, you, you, you got one minute. And you're going to set up the match. You're going to ask Larry who's opponent it, or you're going to ask Larry about his opponent. He's going to tell you his story. He's going to leave you about 20 seconds at the end. Be sure to tell everybody they can buy their tickets at the local, you know, guitar center. You know, any music stores. You could get them at the uh, 7-Elevens in the south side of Minneapolis. You could get them here. You get them here. You get them here. Yeah. And the doors open at seven o'clock. And if you get there early, the, the, so you see, they're dumping all this information on me. It's called a call to action, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know what that at that time. I was just getting like a truck full of crap dumped on me, and I didn't understand. So I'm trying. I'm going. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got it. I got it. I got it. In my head, I'm going. This is going to be a train wreck. <laughs> So, we finally get all, he's getting ready. Are you ready, Eric? Yeah, I'm ready, Vern. Okay. Three, two, one. He points at me like, so I'm standing here with Larry Spiceko, Larry, you're going to be resident. Whatever. It wasn't going that bad. Larry looks at me like this. He goes, <laughs> <laughs> he busts out laughing because it was that bad. It was so bad. It was hilarious. Uh, well, he great. busts out laughing. Guess what the other 25 or 30 people are doing? They're busting out. Now it's like I'm a stand-up comedian, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I'm Bill Burr, right? Stand-up comic. He's my favorite, by the way. I watched him last night. He's a funny guy. So anyway, yeah, that was my first experience. But eventually, yeah, eventually I got better because I couldn't possibly have gotten any worse. Had to get better.
0: That's just, I can't imagine going through that. And then, you know, on top of trying to learn about interviewing skills and setting the talent up, you know, for the spots they've got to hit in the interview and then like you said, get your get your uh whatever in there call to, action. Call to action. I mean it's, it's
1: that's I can't imagine. It was fun know. though. You know and it, it well, it wasn't fun that day. It was painful <laughs> for everybody. But eventually, you know, you it's like anything else. You do it enough, you do it enough, you start yeah overcoming the the, the the initial intimidation of yeah. it all, because you're, anytime you do something you've never done before, it's going to be slightly intimidating, especially if there's other people watching. But um, it got more natural and more natural, and it wasn't long before I, I guess because I'm a, because I'm a good salesman, I mm-hmm. guess it all comes back down to being a good salesman. It does, I think. Yeah, and that's that's part of it. It's just okay. What am I selling? You know, it's it's a different product. I mean, instead of selling food, you know, or managing a team of people that are selling food. Yeah. I'm selling an event and I'm selling a match and I'm selling information about where people can enjoy that product. And Mm -hmm. once you overcome, I overcame the initial fear of doing something so different until I realized it's really not that different. Yeah. It's, it's a one minute sales pitch instead of a four minute sales pitch.
0: Right. It's still
1: a sales pitch. It
0: still is. And that's, that's probably why you, why you caught on as quick as you did, uh, because you are i think you're a good salesman on anything because you have to sell yourself to people you know kind of like the wrestlers have said a lot of the wrestlers have talked about selling uh, their gimmick and all that and uh it's 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 the, the the music business and the entertainment world in general there's a lot of similarities i think and i think that's why there's a there's like this um you know relationship with people in the different industries that kind of you we kind of get it you know without having to explain like every little detail like you would to somebody on the street or whatever um i think there's a lot of similarities in the the way things are are done because the music business is it's the same way you know and you do you've got everybody trying to if you're the new guy coming in i mean i did the whole nashville thing and it just wasn't for me um anybody that knows me knows that um uh, i tried it and i i did make some good uh, connections i wrote some good songs with some good songwriters but you know it just if the chemistry was not there i was not interested i, I just felt like i was it was uh wasting time you know uh but I did learn a lot. Mostly what I learned is what not to do, how not to write a song is really what most, you know, that's, that's the truth. I mean, it sounds backwards and crazy as shit, but it's, it's just me. A a lot of people up there, they just, they'll take whatever, you know, they'll do whatever you tell them. They'll be your, the, the puppet. And that's what a lot of them are. Unfortunately. Um, I'm really surprised, though, to hear you say that they flew you in when you got hired at WCW, and was it 91, I think, you they yep. flew you in. I mean, here I was thinking you was like the carton coffee around. <laughs> you were like the the Folgers fetcher for Shivani and uh, <laughs> Jim
1: Ross. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was close. <laughs> uh, I was the third-string announcer. I was, I was batting cleanup and doing all the announced duties that they didn't have the time or desire in some cases to do
0: yeah and then i guess the joke was on them a couple of years later right two or three years later he became in <laughs> yeah, charge of whole thing pretty much
1: well you know and it's it was funny because tony and i always got along great tony was
0: i love tony. tony was a
1: dream to work with um jim ross was actually my boss mm-hmm. and jim was a eh, kind of crabby but for the most part you get along with him but never really got too close to him Mm-hmm. Um, And when I ended up going from the third string announcer to the president of the company Mm -hmm. and then turning the company around as much as I did, the dynamics of a lot of relationships changed. But the relationship between Tony and I was pretty steady. Uh, He didn't treat me any differently as the president of the company than he did as his support mechanism He, he, Tony's a very level headed guy. So that relationship didn't change much. It certainly changed between Jim Ross and I because he quit a couple days after I
0: was in charge.
1: But Uh. yeah, I don't think because of me, I think that was probably the icing on the cake for him.
0: For a lot of things, yeah.
1: But there were a lot of other reasons, you know, timing and chemistry and history just kind of forced the issue for him.
0: Kind of all rolled into one there and that just topped it Mm -hmm. off. Um, uh, the the country music group Alabama you know you're familiar with them I'm sure Sure, um, they did a thing in Fort Payne here close to where I'm from in northeast Alabama called the June Jam huge event and they did it all through the 80s and the 90s well I think the last one was in like 97 uh, they would do a lot of cross promotional things with uh, WCW I think a few times they did wow. and did you ever come to any of those when you was working there? No,
1: that might have no, I didn't. Um I did some work with Travis Tritt, um in particular. Um, he came to one of our Sturgis events and opened up for us.
0: Oh yeah, um, I remember that. On Road Wild or Hog Wild or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but no, I never I never went to the events where Alabama was a part of it.
0: I know Jim Ross and um I think Dustin Rhodes and I think Dusty and Dustin, they came a few times and they would have like this softball tournament, you know, and have like a celebrity softball tournament. It was all for charity. I mean, it was a huge thing. I mean, this town in Fort Payne was just nothing except that one week of the year. It was the sock capital of the world. So we had all these sock mills going. You know, people like Virginia and up in in, uh, around that area talk about steel mills and all that how that was booming you know uh we were the sock capital of the world so and then clinton came along and all that went to shit. but uh, anyway <laughs>
1: yeah dusty was a D- dusty Rhodes was a and i was pretty tight with dusty you know when i started working in wcw we became friends pretty quickly and actually dusty introduced me to willie uh dusty and willie were pretty tight mm-hmm. and anytime willie would be coming through atlanta there was a guy by the name of Pooty. I don't know if you know who Pooty was. I've heard was. of Pooty, yeah. Pooty was on uh, Willie's crew, mm-hmm. and I think he pretty much ran security. And mm-hmm. I don't exactly Halfway. know what his yeah. job title was, but <laughs> Something, if, yeah. if you wanted to get anywhere near Willie, yeah, um, you'd go through Pooty. And Pooty and Dusty were friends. So we'd always, you know, every time Willie came to town, a couple of us would go with Dusty and hang out, and we get great seats, obviously, and mm-hmm. hang out. And the first time I got to hang out with Willie after a show was an eye-opening <laughs> experience. Yeah, I imagine. But I went went a couple times because I was I was a Willie Nelson fan before I ever went to work for WCW, so it was a big deal for me to sure just to have a conversation with Willie. You know, to make eye contact with somebody like Willie Nelson and actually engage in a conversation, even though it's a sh- you know short conversation, not like this, but yeah. a good conversation friendly conversation and have you know acknowledging you and actually talking to you yeah it was pretty cool you know
0: i loved it I-, I love willie i've been around him a few times and he's always kind and gracious to me and you know we talk about it's kind of like us we don't talk about wrestling with well, me and him we don't really talk about music we talked about uh i can't even remember the last time we talked about bobby bear one time um Cause he had just done that album with, I mean, Willie had just done the album with Merle Haggard. Have you heard that by the way, Django and Jimmy it's Merle Haggard no. and Willie Nelson.
1: No, but I will look for it.
0: Oh, you'll love it. It's good. It's good stuff. Um, We had a conversation about Bobby Bear because you know, it's a long time friend of Willie's. I think, I think bear is the only one that's been in to town in Nashville longer than Willie Nelson. <laughs> he's been there a long time. <laughs> and of course he's a country music hall of famer. And, uh, great artist and everything but um you know that's when things you started doing and you know we won't go in because this is like the long thing that you've talked about really talked about a million times you know the whole going to disney and and you know the production value of tv changing and all that but i wanted to know if when you finally turned a profit for the WCW, because it never had it, it had always lost so much money. Um, did Ted Turner ever came up to you, come up to you, and thank you or give you a gift or personally any kind of little personal nod from Ted?
1: No, not for turning a profit. Um, no, I talked to Ted. There was a period of time when Ted would call me every tuesday afternoon when the ratings came out because oh, really? he was so excited you know so i had a lot of support and positive feedback from ted but it it, it didn't really it didn't really happen when we first turned to profit uh, ironically i don't think that was ted's most that wasn't his biggest goal yeah his biggest goal was to outperform Vince McMahon right. in the WWF whether or not he made money in the process i don't think was really his, yeah. <laughs> his concern cuz he was making a lot of money doing other stuff sure. but he, you know if you read anything about you know Ted Turner's history and how you know turner went from a billboard company mm-hmm. in Macon Georgia to becoming the largest media empire in the world at one point mm-hmm. a lot of ted's thinking evolved around amassing an audience Mm -hmm. of of any just get eyeballs yeah get the eyeballs the more eyeballs you get the more you can promote to them the more you can promote to them the more you can grow right essentially i'm paraphrasing it all but ted loved wrestling Mm -hmm. as he just enjoyed it yeah he liked it for what it was but he also believed from a business perspective that mainstream america your average average person in America likes wrestling and they would they would come they would watch and if you could amass an audience that watched wrestling well then maybe you can promote Andy Mayberry or yeah. maybe you could promote a sitcom or maybe you could promote another type of programming that that same demographic would enjoy yeah and he built Turner Broadcasting on a couple pillars one of which was well, the Atlanta Braves of course yeah and the other was professional wrestling sure even though it was losing money for him for a long time he kept supporting it because it was drawing eyeballs yeah Now he wasn't able to convert those eyeballs into ad sales because wrestling at the time was not really an attractive product for advertisers right it was just a notch or two up from porn yeah so <laughs> advertisers just <laughs> wrestling <laughs> yeah. the only people that would advertise in wrestling were Bottom feeders, if you will. But eventually that changed, and now today it's as mainstream as anything else. But Ted supported and believed in it. Um, He was very supportive when we started winning the ratings. He would call me every Tuesday and, you know, congratulate me and tell me how excited he was and proud he was of WCW and all that. But uh, that was about it. I miss Ted. I I miss Ted. I was just up in Bozeman two weeks ago, spent the night up there. Got stuck up there in a snowstorm, by the way. Oh, man. Spent the night up there, and Ted has uh, Ted Turner's Montana Grill. Yeah, and He has them all over the country.
0: Yeah, there's one in Nashville too.
1: Yeah, I've been there, and I I went into his up in Bozeman is right across the street from the hotel I was staying at. So I went in there and I talked to the bartender. Ted has a big beautiful ranch up in, mm-hmm. just outside of Bozeman, and uh, I was talking to the bartender because I, I had I haven't seen or heard of Ted now in several years. He's he has dementia yeah. and the people around him are doing a great job of, you know, making sure he's not in the public eye when he shouldn't be. Right. So you don't see him out much anymore. But I, I was talking to the bartender, and that bartender had worked at this particular Ted Turner's Montana Bar Grill for like 10 years, back when Ted was really active. And he would, you know, he'd tell me stories. It was so, it just reminded me of Ted so much. Ted would come in in the middle of a dinner rush, and he'd sit down and have dinner with people, you know, they were in there having dinner dinner you know yes mm-hmm. and just sit down and talk about baseball or talk about hunting or fishing or whatever because ted loved to hunt and fish yeah um he's a big hunter uh, so yeah i miss ted he he was an inspiration and in a lot still is in a, in a lot of ways yeah he seems like success
0: never changed him you know you get those those few guys very few guys that just kind of the same the whole way through he seems like no he uh
1: he was a different breed yeah you know, I don't know that he could survive in today's world because it's just such a phony political st- styro- styrofoam type of world. Yeah, even more business wise, and if you, you you have to go along to get along, or you had get along to go along, whatever the say, saying is. Yeah, Ted was not like that. He was he was a renegade. He did things his way. They call him the mouth of the South because he'd say such outrageous shit. Yeah, even when I was, you know, when he was, you know. had... He had a Turner Broadcasting, and he'd be public speaking, and he would say things that the people around him would just go, "Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, God, I wish he wouldn't have said that." Ted didn't care; he just didn't care. Yeah, um,
0: he was—he was definitely one of a kind, I think, from everything I've read or heard about him. Um, now, when whenever y'all had that meeting, and you went in to pitch uh, something totally different. Mm-hmm. the one where he said you know you've talked about it a million times he, he, he turned to one of the executives and said give eric two hours every night on every monday night on tnt right um and again here you are trying to improvise just like you're back in awa again you know saying <sighs> okay well this is 30 seconds and all that you know same thing here we are again except a lot bigger deal now and it's ted turner so um uh, i think you made a pretty good Made a good, you know, instant decision there. And, uh, I would say, wouldn't you?
1: Well, I, I didn't really have a choice. It wasn't, I, I didn't get to make a decision. My only decision was to get out of that office as quickly <laughs> as I couldn't figure out how to pull this off.
0: Yeah, without because piss he, he, running down your leg. Yeah, he,
1: he blindsided me with that. You know, I, I went in to talk about international distribution and doing a deal with Rupert Murdoch over in China, which, you know, We never even got two minutes into that conversation before he turned it around on me and said, Eric, what do we need to do to be competitive with the WWF? Man. I thought, shit, I hadn't thought about that. I never thought about trying to be competitive with the WWF. I'm just trying to make a buck. I just want to make $1 in profit for the first time in history. That was my goal, literally my goal. I'm not exaggerating. My goal was to make $1, Mm -hmm. not $0.50, not $0.99. I wanted to make $1. In fact, I'll tell you a quick story, and I'm going to probably have to wrap up before too long. But there was a guy by the name oh, Harry Anderson. His name was Harry Anderson, and he was uh, like the CFO like the chief CFO or whatever his title was, but he was he was the big deal on the finance side of the company. And I had a meeting with him. This is in early 1996. I had a meeting with Harry. And the meeting was with myself, Harry Anderson, and my boss at the time, a guy by the name of Bill Shaw. Mm-hmm. And I went into this meeting. It was, it was a positive meeting, you know, just kind of, okay, where are we at this quarter? What do you think is going to happen next quarter? Where do you see yourself at the end of the year? That Not a lot of pressure, just almost a conversation more than anything. I said, well, Harry, we're going to turn a profit this year. He went, <laughs> okay, Eric, <laughs> just tell me where you think you're really going to be. I said, no, we're going to make the first dollar profit this company has ever seen. And he, he, he just shook his head and smiled like I was some... Lunatic snot nosed little kid that yeah. didn't know what the hell he was talking right. about, and he said, Eric, that's not going to happen. And so, I said, Harry, I'm sure it's going to happen. In fact, I'll bet you right now <laughs> that it's going to happen. And he said, Well, I can't bet you. It's you know, this is a publicly held corporation. I said, Harry, here's the deal if I turn a profit in this company, you agree that you will get down on your hands and knees, you get down on your knees. And hand me, hand me that first dollar of profit and you'll do it in front of every employee in WCW. And he laughed. He said, sure, you got it. And we uh, shook on it. Uh, at our Christmas party in 1996, <laughs> Harry Anderson came to the Mexican restaurant. We were all having our company party out in downtown Atlanta, got on his knee and handed me that first dollar of profit is the most exciting thing I've ever achieved, honestly. The rest of it is all cool, and I'm proud of a lot of it. But that dollar, and I've got the picture somewhere. I'm going to have to find it because it was, it, it was not just a moment for me. In fact, I, I knew it was going to happen, so I wasn't surprised or anything. But it meant a lot to the employees. Up until that point, they were the redheaded stepchild of Turner Broadcasting. and Nobody else wanted them around. Nobody wanted WCW to be a part of Turner Broadcasting. There were a lot of executives in Turner that were trying to unplug WCW forever, and the only reason they weren't able to is because Ted said no, and Ted called the shots. If it would have been you know, a, a decision by executive committee, we would have been dead in 1991 or two. But Ted suck it out and Harry Anderson got that and he was a good guy. You know, for you know, finance people are generally kinda of sticks in the mud. You know, they're not yeah, they are. personal people by nature. Yeah. You know, they've spent their whole lives in a calculator and yeah. balancing numbers, so they tend to be a little bit yeah. not not so sociable. Not this guy. He had a great sense of humor. He made a big deal out of it. He got down like he was <laughs> gonna ask me to marry him. You know, it was like <laughs> extra- overly dramatic and handed me that dollar and sat there long enough so that everybody could get a picture. Mm-hmm. He was a really good sport. Uh that
0: would be quite a moment. I mean, like you said, probably not just for you, but just to know what you actually fucking accomplished. That's that'd have to I can't imagine feeling that way. You know, taking that well, company it, and just completely I mean, well, that was only the beginning, but just to make it, because technically, with a dollar of profit, it's profitable now. Well,
1: and that, even though well, in that year we actually made more than one dollar, we probably were <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, quite but not quite much more. No, we were probably only we probably only beat that dollar by fifty or seventy-five thousand dollars. Oh, the first. So it wasn't like we made a ton. Yeah, two mm-hmm. years later, that number was fifty to seventy-five million. Yeah. But by that time, it wasn't about the money anymore. I mean, it was for people that ran Turner. Yeah. But internally, it was more about, you know, how do we keep making a better product? How do we keep changing the way wrestling is produced? How do we reinvent this business that's gotten a little stale? Yeah. And and continue the growth.
0: Well, it's it's really amazing because, I mean, you, you literally, I think, thought of every... Right idea. and who, who came up with the name Monday Nitro for that show, by the way?
1: That was actually Brad Siegel. Oh, really? Who was the head of uh, TNT at the time. Because TNT had a block, a, a regular they call it a block but maybe they do in the music business too but like every tuesday night from seven to nine or seven to ten yeah was called the nitro block and it was all action movies yeah old schwarzenegger movies old steven seagal movies or whatever movies right Jean claude Van Damme, all that crap was all in that nitro block the action block and that block was doing pretty well on tuesday nights, so i think it was brad's idea to take the the name the brand nitro block and convert it kind of segued into professional wrestling called the show monday nitro because it was action and it was male 18 to 34 sure. 18 to 49 so it had some branding logic behind it but that was brad siegel's idea
0: and you know then after that bringing in of course hulk hogan by far the biggest at the time uh but you know randy savage and uh slim jim you know, Roddy with Piper. him, Roddy Piper, I mean, uh, just, and, and the NASCAR thing, the relationship that you, I don't, did you put that together, the relationship yeah. with NASCAR? I mean, that was yeah. a huge, that had to be a huge deal. Um, yep,
1: it was, it was fun too, because it legitimized WCW sure. even more so. You know, once we started making money and we started making big headlines, you know, in, in the media. You know, Ad Week would be yeah. writing stories about us and Variety magazine would yep. have stories about us. And all of a sudden we went from being the redheaded stepchild that everybody hoped wouldn't come to Thanksgiving dinner to, you know, being a big deal. Yeah. And once we brought, once we kind of capitalized on that momentum and brought NASCAR in, and that was when, you know, NASCAR is not, today isn't what it used to be, nope. so very popular. <laughs> But back in the mid to late 90s, you you couldn't walk into a restaurant or a bar on any given weekend at any time during the day and not see some version of NASCAR Mm -hmm. on television in the sports bar. Yeah. Recaps, previews, yeah, whatever, you know, dirt track races, it didn't matter. You're gonna watch a race. some form of NASCAR is going to be on television. Yeah. And when we were able to bring a team in and, and it was a Bush team, you know it wasn't a, a, it wasn't a NASCAR team, but we, we were able to bring in a Bush team and and get a lot of press and legitimacy. And Richard Petty came on, and all of a sudden, people within Turner now, even if they thought making money was a fluke, and now all of a sudden we're we're legitimate.
0: Yeah, and the advertisers, I'm sure, were a lot more interested at that time too.
1: Especially, and it just added to the credibility of the brand, is what it did.
0: You know, the whole I watched the the Last Dance, the ESPN documentary on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole Dennis Rodman thing. I mean, I you know, it, it's just insane. Uh, <laughs> I mean, people that don't know, just go watch that. Go watch that documentary. I mean, it's a great anybody that's not seen it um was you ever worried about like any legal issues or something with him because he's missing practice and going around getting his ass thrown around in the ring you know just i mean just hitting the mat wrong could have
1: (laughs) no yeah i wasn't first of all dennis i really really like dennis robin i'm dennis is a good friend of mine he's bizarre I don't want to say bizarre because that's the wrong way to carry. He is He's a very unique individual. But I will tell you this: if if you ever had a chance to sit down and talk to Dennis Rodman, and it's hard because Dennis, people when I say this, people don't it doesn't square peg round hole. They can't figure it out. Dennis is a very very shy person. I've heard he's that he's an intro. He's an introvert. Yeah, he's very uncomfortable around people he doesn't know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not because he doesn't like people, but he's He's got his own issues. He's got his own insecurities as a human being. We all do. We all do, In one way, shape, or form. So Dennis is naturally a very shy person. I think he, you know, the crazy, flamboyant Dennis that the media saw was his way of kind of hiding the real Dennis Rodman. Right. But when you sit down, if you ever had a chance to sit down and talk to Dennis, and you get past that first 20 minutes or half hour of... Kind of uncomfortableness, just because it's awkward. Yeah, awkward's the right word. And once he he opens up, he is one of the more intelligent people I've ever had conversations with. Intelligent in in terms of human nature and insight and instinct and intuition. He's a very down-to-earth guy. You know, he grew up in Texas in a tough environment. Not not an inner-city environment necessarily, but in a tough environment depressed economically. He's had a lot of things he's had to get through in his life that most people probably couldn't have mm-hmm. and he's come out of it, believe it or not, pretty much okay. you know flaws and things and nicks and banged up here and here and there but he's a good human he's a very good human being. The problem with Dennis I think, not with Dennis but people like Dennis, he's generous to a fault he's trusting to a fault yeah and i think those are good qualities by the way i i try to be as generous as i can be and i try to trust as much as i can i'm a little more cynical than i care to be just because i've been around the block in the entertainment business a few too many times but dennis is he's so generous and so trusting and people have taken advantage of him as a result of that yeah um Dennis could have probably retired a multimillionaire six or eight times over with the amount of money that he's left on bar tabs that you know people have run up for him you know yeah. it's, but he's a good human being and a talented one but no I was never worried about him at all super athlete you know he's tough to manage you know he doesn't like to practice
0: yeah
1: doesn't like to prepare too much but man once that red light goes on oh my god he's he's like uh He's got like a photographic memory. You show him a move or a sequence of moves, even more complex, show him a sequence of moves, he kind of watches it, walks through it once slowly, red light goes on, flawless. Mm. He can do it. Where the average person would take him two weeks to to learn and be able to execute. Dennis can watch you do something once, walk through it once at half speed or less, and then execute it with perfection. So never worried about him.
0: Um I always wondered too how how hard was it for y'all to acquire the licensing for the Jimi Hendrix song for Hulk.
1: Great, great question. Um I got on the phone and I can't remember who the first person I talked to was. Doesn't really matter. I ended up talking to Jimmy's sister. Oh wow. Who controlled the estate. Mm-hmm. and all the licensing. Mm-hmm. And I cut the deal with Jimi Hendrix's sister. How about that? For $100,000 a year for worldwide rights. A year? For world- a year. Are you kidding me? hundred. And now, here's the funny part, Andrew. Now, you're in the music business, so you get this. God. Most people, at that time, when I did that deal, people thought I was insane. <laughs> people thought I was don't know. burning Ted oh, Turner's no. money. Oh, my God. Eric Bischoff spent $100,000 thousand dollars just to play three because i was limited to three minutes by the way not three not three seconds not 30 seconds three minutes
0: that's that's a hell of a deal <laughs> i'll tell you and, that that's a hell of a deal for yeah. that
1: song <laughs> but i love that song voodoo child yeah, was one too. of my favorite songs as a kid growing up i love and I to this day i love Jimi Hendrix's music he's phenomenal oh yeah there's certain people that just are in a category of their own when it comes to music and he's one of them for me
0: yeah
1: and i you know i did that deal with Jimi Hendrix's sister
0: wow how about that i still can't believe it. i mean
1: and a phone call lasted about 20 minutes really maybe less
0: a hundred grand for a whole year not just so many uses a whole year worldwide That's worldwide insane rights. man
1: pay-per-view <laughs> television commercials God. unlimited use as long as i didn't use more than three minutes on any one show You know, so I couldn't, you know, I couldn't have Hulk Hogan walk out five times and play Jimi Hendrix music each time, right? Yeah. And three minutes for each show, but three and usually, you know, a minute and a half walkout is all you need. Two minute walkout is all you need because you kind of fade the music as you you know making your way to the ring anyway. So it was more than enough time. But worldwide rights, pay per view, television, radio, advertising, uh, television advertising didn't matter. That's amazing. Now, if if someone were to try to cut that deal right now oh, it no. would be
0: uh-uh. i don't know it'd be in the millions oh yeah easy millions i mean that's yeah. that's insane and that was what that was 97 wasn't it
1: i think so 96 97 but that you oh, know God. again that was before music licensing you know the music businesses i mean you obviously have forgotten more about how much the music business has changed than i'll ever know but That was back in a time when, you know, music licensing for commercial purposes is kind of like, eh, yeah, yeah, it's there. Yeah, we make a couple bucks. Not a big deal. Now it's like huge. People, I think, write music hoping that it's going to get licensed for music or for television or film.
0: Yeah, I've actually had a few um, close calls, one with the show Yellowstone, and we're still working on on that one, uh, they made. Oh, I hope
1: you get It's one of my favorite shows, brother.
0: I love Yellowstone, and me and my wife. And we watch uh, Ozark, I love Ozark, and Shits Creek. That's like our three, like best.
1: Yeah, I watch, I watch Yellowstone, obviously. Um, Shits Creek, my wife watches, she loves it. I, for whatever reason, I just don't connect to it. But Yellowstone, in fact, there was a where did I say I must have saw it online last fall. They were actually looking. They're going to cast extras um, for for the season that they're filming. And I thought, I'm you know, a couple hours away, I'm going to drive up there. I don't care, you know. Yeah. If I'm into, I just want to be on Yellowstone. Yeah. You know, I don't care if I'm in the background. You know, mm-hmm. shooting a horse. I don't care. But uh, I just the, the timing didn't work out. And I wasn't able to get up there. But who knows? It may happen again.
0: You seen Ozark? Oh yeah. That's one oh, yeah. of our favorites too. I love that show. That's such a brilliant. Yeah, Ozark's
1: off the air. You know, they quit filming. I mean, it's streaming now, so if you haven't seen the whole season or whole series yet, you should have stuff to watch. But, yeah, know, they, they canceled that one, and I don't know about Shit's Creek, well, the Yellowstone's going to go for a while.
0: There's, uh, I think there's one more season of Ozark, though, aren't there? Next year? The final season?
1: I don't know. I thought it was over.
0: I think there's one Could more be season.
1: Wrong. I hope you're right.
0: I think they're wrapping it up.
1: I hope you're right.
0: Yeah, that, that's a brilliant show, and um, kind of like Breaking Bad. And we watched Breaking Bad, and, and it's just the writing is—that's what I get into. You know, I like I like chemistry on screen and uh, the actors, but the the writing in that show is just phenomenal. I think
1: um, writing a movie is a little bit. That's another. It, it's like you know, I ask you, you know, what's the what's the catalyst? What's the process for writing a song? And I have the same questions about writing a movie now i understand the creative process for a movie a little bit more than i do for music because writing for television is not much different in some ways than writing for a movie yeah but the discipline and the technique and the needs for movies are so much different and i'm yeah i may have told you when you're here but i'm involved with a a movie project for netflix and i get to work with a, a writer and when i say work with a writer i get to I get to answer a few questions along the way in the in the in the form of research that the writers involved. But we've developed a really good relationship over the last two years of this process. And I'm able to pick his brain about that process and Mm -hmm. how the whole journey of a movie, from the first time you sit down in front of your keyboard and go, Okay, what's the first word I'm gonna type here? You know? Yeah. Until you get to the end and you finally got it polished enough you're gonna present it to a studio. That process is a fascinating process and I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity just to get a little peek in you yeah know, behind the door
0: yeah um, of course everybody knows the whole AOL time Warner merger is when Ted pretty much was becoming more out of the picture and in turn you became out of the picture not long after that because none of the executives except for Ted and you even wanted anything to do with WCW um, which I don't, I can't understand that because it it was making so much money at the time. I mean, it was probably the highest-rated show on TNT.
1: Well, it was, but as much as I didn't like the fact that you know there were so many executives that wanted WCW to be out of the the whole Turner catalog, I understood it because yes, WCW was making good money. Great money, I guess. But not as much money as, for example, a movie would make in prime time or a regular Mm -hmm. series would make. Because wrestling still, even in 96, 97, 98, when we were profitable, advertisers still hadn't really warmed up to wrestling yet. So although you could sell advertising for wrestling, you were selling it at a very opportunistic rate, meaning cheap. Yeah. The only people that were buying it were buying it because it was cheap. Yeah. Um, that was beginning to change through the late 90s, but it still hadn't really changed to the point where two hours of commercial inventory for professional wrestling was worth a fraction of, what, two hours worth of of advertising in a movie of the week. Mm. Wow. So there, there was a reason for it, but, you know, it didn't make it feel any better to those of us that were making <laughs> a paycheck every week in wrestling. <laughs> Even Just just because you can understand it doesn't mean you like it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's... After,
0: after Vince McMahon finally bought, WCW, and you see him on screen. Did you? You probably said before if you've watched that show or not.
1: I didn't uh, watch it. I couldn't watch it. I, I just couldn't. I was too. I was too upside down in my own head. Yeah. To to the, spend any time watching it. Well, the. Uh,
0: did you ever have like that moment of weakness, like a month later after it happened, and you kind of accepted that the deal didn't happen, and he's got it now, and he's sitting there, ha ha ha, laughing? Did you ever have that moment of weakness where you just wanted to drive to Stanford and like kick his door in
1: and use no, some of this? No, I didn't blame me. I didn't blame Vince. Vince was doing the same thing that I would have done if I'd have been in his shoes. Sure. I I. I it wasn't anything personal between Vince and I, and even in my own head. I, you know, I, at that point, I didn't really know Vince McMahon. And yeah, met him once, but uh, no, I I wasn't angry at WWF. Yeah, I was angry. At, I there were some people in Turner Broadcasting I wouldn't mind taking a swing at at the time. But yeah, not 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 Vince himself.
0: That's the craziest thing about that because, I mean, it's like everybody thought the deal was already done, and then at the very last minute. You can't have T V time. So
1: Yeah, well it's you know it's,
0: it's insane. The
1: joys of doing business at a corporate level.
0: Um I appreciate you coming on and being the first guest here for picking it out and uh just uh keep doing good with your eighty three weeks. I'm I'm happy for the success you've had with that and for Lori too. Oh, how's Nikki by the way? She was just you had just got her when I was there
1: she's doing so great is she's looking at her now there's a big buffalo hide up on the wall and there's a indian rug on the floor she's sound asleep because we had just taken her for a long hike before i came here to do this she's great she's with me 23 hours and 55 minutes a day wow uh so yeah we we, we do a lot together a great dog
0: i follow you on instagram and i see pictures of her that you put and i'm like man she's getting
1: big She's getting big. She's a little chunky. I mean, she's stocky. She's you know, she's not fat, but she's yeah. a stocky. You know, it's the breed. of Australian cattle dogs are heavily muscled, kind of yeah. pit bull-looking cattle yeah. dogs is what they are. But she's a great dog.
0: That's good. Uh, I appreciate you coming on and appreciate y'all tuning in to the first episode of Picking It Out. And we'll see you next time.